You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you um, that everything we just sang is true. God, thank you that you saw fit in your infinite grace and mercy um, to come down to us when we had no way to get to you. Jesus, through your work, your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, and your ascension, and the current reality that you are today ruling and reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords is truly our hope. And so, Lord, I pray as we continue our time of worship through the teaching of your word, um, that you are glorified, that the redeemed in this place say so, that our hearts and our faith is strengthened in you, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the truth of your word. But Father, if there's one here that doesn't know you in a personal way, maybe it's just a head knowledge, maybe there's someone here that's just um, seeking and trying to just do what they feel is culturally right in being at church, or whatever the case may be, um, Father, I pray that by your grace that you would, you would barge in to their heart and mind and soul with your sovereign grace and open the eyes of their hearts to the truth of the gospel. We pray for salvation. We thank you that you are with us and we pray that you are glorified. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's really good to see everybody this morning. My name is Hank Atchison. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church. Um, and so if you have your Bible this morning or your device, you're going to want to go ahead and get it open to the book of Deuteronomy. If you don't have a Bible or a device, we have some up here to my left or to my right. This would be a good opportunity for you to grab one of those, and, and that can just be our gift to you if you don't have one. And um, we'd love for you to take that with you. Um, but what we've done the last few weeks is not what we normally do. So the last few weeks, we've done overviews of three Old Testament books. We started with Leviticus, and then we went to Numbers, and then this morning, we're going to do an overview of Deuteronomy. What we normally do at Covenant Church is we normally go through books of the Bible, what's called verse by verse. And so, for example, we started the book of Ephesians in January, and it wasn't like one verse every Sunday, but sections of Ephesians we took a verse at a time, through uh, the second week of July. And so and we picked up in July, obviously, with these overviews. And what we'll do in August, in, in August we're going to have what's called our Core Values Series, or our Covenant Foundation. So if you are new to Covenant Church and interested in more of what we're about and what we sense the Lord has called us to here in this community and to the ends of the earth, the month of August is going to be a really good month for you to try to stick it out because you're going to at least get a really good idea as to what we are about because each Sunday um, we'll take one of our core values and unpack that not only biblically but also in a way of application and how we flesh that out here as a faith community in in as um, called Covenant Church. Picking up in September, Lord willing, if He takes us that far, we will begin a verse by verse journey in the Book of Joshua, and so that's where these overviews will really come into play. A year or so ago, we went through Exodus, and it took us about a year and a half to get through Exodus. And so the, these stories that we've heard the last few weeks really begin with the Exodus story. I, I say begin, sort of begin with the Exodus story. In that Leviticus, in that overview, the whole context and setting was at the base of Mount Sinai. And, and the point of Leviticus, if you remember, again, it's one of those books that if you've done your Bible reading plans, you might get to Leviticus, get to Numbers, get to Deuteronomy, and be like, okay, I'm derailed. 
I need to get to the New Testament and get to the New Testament fast. And, and so they kind of get a bad rap and they have a bad reputation. Um, but these overviews can, can really help you see things from like a 30,000 foot view that you can't see if you go verse by verse. So again, these overviews are a really helpful tool. All right. So Leviticus basically was about how a holy God has made a way for unholy people to dwell with him. That was as simple as I know how to put it, what Leviticus is about. In Numbers, what we saw were these people that God has chosen and that he's made a way for them to dwell with him um, go on a really unfortunate journey. And what should have only taken about 11 days, about a 90-mile trip, ended up being a 40-year trip of wandering in the wilderness because not because God is not faithful, but because of their faithlessness and rebellion against God and his ways and their disobedience. And so last week, Numbers ends with the Israelites right at the border of the promised land, the, the, the land that God had promised them. But what we found out along the journey is this Exodus generation that received the actual law from God is not going to make it to the promised land because of their disobedience. In fact, Moses, their leader, their God-ordained chosen leader, um, the, the functioning mediator between God and his people has been Moses through all these years. Um, he, in fact, is not going to make it either. And so here they are on the border of the promised land waiting to get in, and they know that Moses is about to die. And so now you get the book of Deuteronomy. Now, it's not as clean as I'm going to put it in this next sentence. But basically, Deuteronomy, it's, it's Moses' farewell sermons. There's at least three sermons that Moses gives. And don't worry, I know we're doing an overview. I'm not going to give three sermons, Okay. Just one. It's a little long, but it's just one. But Moses gives three sermons as his farewell speech to the Israelites. Now, I'm, I'm going to show you a, a slide that has an outline. I'm not going to read through all of it like I did in the first service because it takes too long. Some of you are OCD note takers. I know who you are. You know who you are. This slide doesn't disappear into Never Never Land when we go to the next one. You can get it. All right, so if it helps you, instead of trying to write, 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 just take a picture of this in about five, four, three, in just a couple seconds, it's going to be gone, but just gone for this moment. It can come back, so chill. But there's an outline. I took too much time going through it before, and it's gone, just like that. Zach, give them one more chance, because somebody was listening to me and not, all right, we're going to wait. I'm going to pause. What's Deuteronomy about? What's the thesis? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, we have the point. We have the point of the book. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Like that's the point. Hebrews call this the Shema. And the reason they call it the Shema is because of the very first word of verse 6. Here. Now there's, this is worth unpacking just so we understand the seriousness moving forward and why this is the main point of the book of Deuteronomy. In the Hebrew, to hear or to listen was twofold. There's a slide for it. Again, just I'm going to go through this one a little bit slower. Here was not only hear. Like some of you hear my voice right now, and in English that just means you hear me. 
Well, in the Hebrew, they didn't have a category for someone that heard a command and didn't respond. Okay? So there was no such thing as just hearing. It was hearing plus a response. And the response was either obedience or disobedience. And so this isn't just here, like there's something, some sort of you know, value in just the fact that you can hear with your physical ears what's being said. It's hearing and then responding, which equals, hopefully, obedience. Love is the same. I mean, when he says, hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. Well, love in, in English is not near as rich as it is in Greek and Hebrew. Love, you can love your spouse. Hopefully you do. You can love your children. You can love your parents. You can also love Doritos. We use the same word. It's not so in these languages that the Bible was written. For the Hebrew, emotion, love was emotion plus decision. It wasn't enough to just say, oh, I love you, and not show you. It was this idea that if the, if the emotion is there, then that's invoked some action, some, like, like it's now a verb. Now there's a decision to be made in which equals devotion. And so the point of Deuteronomy is Moses gives his farewell sermons to the, the Israelites. He's imploring them to hear plus respond which of course means obey the Lord and to love, which is not just emotion. It involves decision and ultimately leads to devotion. So Israel is to listen and to love the Lord our God. The Lord is one, which is literally the one true God. That's the whole point of the book. Listen to, be devoted to the Lord who is the one true God. Now, Deuteronomy is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's quoted uh, not only in the Old Testament, and remembered not only in the Old Testament, but it's also quoted often in the New Testament. In fact, a fun fact here, Jesus quoted it more than any other Old Testament book. Jesus also used it more than any other book in the Old Testament. If you remember his temptation in the wilderness... He answers Satan three times from those, uh, like, like during those temptations. And all three quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy. And so this is a farewell speech from Moses to the people that he has faithfully led all of these years. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take just a quick journey like we have the other Sundays and find our way all the way to the end. And then, Lord willing, if we make it there and you're still awake, we're going to do some application. In the first four chapters, Moses reminds them of the miracles in Egypt. Remember, that's the foundation. And, and that's last week as we looked in Numbers, we were often confused. Like, how can these people be so disobedient? How can they be so rebellious? I mean, how can you cross the Red Sea, and I'm adding this, and complain about mud being on your sandals, right? How can you complain about the taste of quail and manna that God is bringing down from the sky to provide for you? How can you fuss about the fact that you have water when God has, in fact, provided water for you and your livestock when there wasn't any? That's the kind of people that we're dealing with. And again, last week, we thought, yeah, it's really easy for us to kind of pile up on them and give them a hard time. But if we're honest, when we look at the Israelites, it's a lot like looking in the mirror. And so... Moses reminds them in the first four chapters of all that God has done for them. And when this is brought up in the first four chapters and even in some of the Psalms and other writings of the prophets and the New Testament, this is so important, you guys. 
when they're reminded of this great salvation that God has given, it is for worship and warning. Worship because of the mercy that God has shown to a rebellious people. That's obvious. Warning, warning because there are and there were consequences. There were consequences to their rebellion and disobedience. Now, their disobedience and rebellion never forfeited the fact that they were God's people. Amen? That's really, really good news. And that's where we're headed in this thing because that's where the book hits. But it never forfeited the fact that they were God's people, but there were earthly consequences to their decision. So it's for warning and for worship. In chapters 5 through 11, there is a call to recommit to ensure the well-being and the well-being of future generations. And then you have this massive chunk in chapters 12 through 26 that is the second giving of the law. Uh, and, and I didn't mention this at the beginning, but the word Deuteronomy means second law. That, that's, not a su- that's not a super helpful translation, to be honest, because this isn't like another law. This is the repeating of a law that was already given. But what you'll see in 12 through 26, those chapters, is that most of the laws are repeated. There are a few that are now new and unique, but they're summed up in love God and love your neighbor. In chapters 27 through 28, Moses reminds the people of Israel that God will bless them if they follow his law, and he will curse those that do not. In fact, it's, it's really interesting because it's sort of the tale of two mountains. So if you have your Bible, turn to 27, chapter 27, 9 through 13. Because I, I, like for me, when I read this this week, it, it helped me sort of kind of like, like get a visual. And, and, and that was the point for the Israelites was to have a, a, like, like this tangible thing, this tangible, visible reminder of what it meant to obey and what it meant to disobey the Lord, okay? In 27, I'm going to start in verse 9. It says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command to you today. That day, Moses charged the people saying, all right, all right, this is when they cross into the promised land, okay? When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on the Mount of Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. So you have this one mountain on Mount Gerizim. You have these people who are representative of the blessing of God. All right, but watch, you have this other mountain. Verse 13, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali, and then it goes on in verse 14 through 26 to talk about them constantly proclaiming what the curse is. But literally, they have these two mountains with these messages coming from both mountains. And so the Israelites stand at the base of these mountains, and they're constantly reminded that obedience leads to blessing and prosperity, and disobedience leads to curse. And then in 29 and 30, that chapters that is, you're going to be shocked. Moses predicts that they will be disloyal and exiled. I'm not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Moses himself is not going to make it to the promised land because of his disobedience. He's tried to lead these people for years now. He knows what he's dealing with, even though it's a new generation. Then in chapter 30, In spite of their faithlessness, God would restore them. And this is a huge development. This is huge, huge. Because listen, what's what's been the highlight of the Israelites' existence up to this point has been the fact that they have no faith. 
the highlight has been God's faithfulness and their lack of faith. So this is a huge, huge development in the story, and it's found in chapter 30, verses 4 through 6. It says, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord will God, now listen, will, certain, not might, not he's hoping, not like fingers crossed. This is sure. God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring so that you, again, the certainty, hear the certainty, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And I say this is, is a huge development because you have to be asking yourself at this point if you followed us in this story. Is it the Israelites' choice of right every time their hope? Is that the hope? They have this command to, to love God. Have you ever tried to love something that you didn't love? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> may cause issues. Don't want to cause any issues. But, but from a religious standpoint, when you try to manufacture love, what that feels like is legalism. If you want to see somebody that gets burnt out and burn out quick, it's because they're trying to make themselves love something. When you love something or someone, you don't necessarily need a list of things to do for them. You know why? Because you love them. And you want to do it. You want to please them. You want to be for their good. You want to make a big deal about them. And so there's something fundamentally wrong with the Israelites now, and us. Fundamentally, there's something wrong with human beings because we don't have the ability in and of ourselves, even if we adhere to the law outwardly as much as possible, to create a heart of love for God. We can't create it. We can't make it happen. And so that's why it's a huge development because we're going through this thing going, hey, like, how, are we sure God's going to be successful here? Are we sure God's going to save these people, like, ultimately? Are we sure they're going to get to the promised land? But listen, friends, if it was up to the Israelites, the story would already be over. We would not have done three overviews. We'd have finished in about the first three or four chapters of Exodus, and that would have been it. But it's not. And so, again, like I'm, I'm planting that seed so that when we can apply this later in, in the message, but this is a huge development because God promises to give them new hearts so that they can love and obey the Lord. Then in chapter 30, there's a quick pep talk beginning in verse 11. Moses says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Verse 14, I love 14. But the word is very near you. Think of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Verse 15, see, I have set before you. He's about to draw a line in the sand. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So that's one side of the line. If you obey, there's blessing and prosperity. Okay? Here's the other side of the line. But, verse 17, if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And he goes on to say, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And this is the climatic moment of Deuteronomy. Therefore, choose life. Now, Life is the choice for blessing and prosperity. Death is the choice if you want consequence. Death is the consequence for dis, disloyalty. So there's a line in the sand. Notice there, there's, not a, there's not a third mountain of, of, of neutrality. There's not a mountain for people that are trying to figure things out. There's not a mountain for gray area. It's similar to Jesus' words when he says, you're either for me or what you're against me so there's not like a peripheral land there's not a nominal israelite land you either choose life or you choose death well in chapter 31 joshua is named moses's successor chapter 31 moses writes the torah down which are the first five books of the old testament and commands them to read it out loud together every seven years at a special feast. So, so they're to take the Torah and read it out loud together every seven years at a special feast. Look at 31, 12 through 13, where he says, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of His law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Just a side note that I think is beautiful. He's not just saying, hey men, you gather together and read this and hear this. Or hey women, you gather together and hear this and read this. Or hey adults, you guys get together and read this law. This is a call for families. I mean, he's specific, men, women, and little ones. And so we see that we, as a faith community, still even today, have a responsibility not only to our own biological children, but to the children that are in our community to teach them the ways of the Lord. Chapter 32, Moses writes a song. And this song basically serves as a warning 44 through 40, uh, 47 verses, that is, of chapter 32 tell us as much. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. 47, I love this first part. For it is no empty word for you. So how important is the word of the Lord to the Lord's people? Is it empty? Now listen, but your very life, 
And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. After Moses reads this song and gives his commentary of the song, the Lord commands Moses at this point to go up the mountain and die. But just before he goes up the mountain, Moses gives them chapter 33. And chapter 33 is Moses' blessing to the people. And, and he, he asks for God's blessing over future tribes. He asks for their prosperity in the Lord, spiritual and physical. And he wants to bless them. And then in chapter 34, the Lord takes Moses to the top of Mount Pisgah. And I love this. He shows them the promised land. He can't go. He's not going. And so the Lord invites Moses up to the top. And from the top of Pisgah, like geographically the way it's laid, Moses could see the land that he had faithfully led the people to the border of, that he was not going to be able to enter because of his disobedience. Then in 34, the book closes. I want to read to you from chapter 5 to the end of the book. I mean, verse 5 to the end of the book. So Moses the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died, and, and just because he knows, like, like we're about to think, man, he was old and broke down. I'm 43 and feel old and broke down. But listen, his eye was undimmed. And his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So one day, Moses goes up to the top of Mount Pisgah. God shows him the promised land. And Moses never returns. He dies. In September... We'll pick up literally right here in the book of Joshua. But as we've done with these other overviews, like what's the point for us? What's the, what's the application? Like what's our takeaway? Because you can, uh, really Deuteronomy can really be misunderstood in, in my opinion. And, and I'm, if I'm just completely honest with you right now in this moment, I struggle with books like Deuteronomy for the reasons I'm about to tell you because there are two extremes that I've noticed that people walk away from from Deuteronomy. Some look at all this talk of law and obedience and they absolutely love it. And, and this, this pendulum goes to this far extreme of self-righteousness and legalism and, and some even believe to the, to the extreme of, hey, we have to still obey this law as much as we possibly can to a T because it's the law that God gave His people. But... I, I don't think they've read many of them, <laughs> if they're thinking that. Just read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. But even if they're not adamant about following this specific law, 
there's still, even today, this application of like this whole thing hinges on our obedience and ability morally to do the right thing every single time. So there's that extreme. Like we are God's people because we obey. And then there's this other extreme of people who come to books like Deuteronomy and they hear words like law and it makes their skin crawl and they hear words like obedience and they're like, no, we're grace people. We got Jesus, man. We don't need any of those laws. We don't even need to consider those laws. In fact, as long as I have grace and I know that I'm saved, then it doesn't really matter how I live or what I do. That's another extreme. And brothers and sisters and friends, to be clear, both, both are sinful. Both are a misunderstanding, not only of Deuteronomy, but also of the gospel. But I think the main confusion for me falls on this question. Whose choice is decisive? Right? I mean, that, that's a fair question. The Israelites are called to make the right choice. But then we also have this reality that the Israelites are God's what? People. Chosen people. So, so can their choice ever forfeit God's choice? That's what I mean by what choice is determinative. What choice is decisive? That's a really important question, not only to understand Deuteronomy, but it's also a very important question to understand the gospel. Is their salvation by grace? Is ours? Were they saved in a different way than we are saved. Fundamentally, the answer is no. And it, you might want to jot this down. The, the basis of salvation, the basis of biblical salvation, Old Testament and New Testament, here's the basis. It's God's sovereign grace. Period. If anybody's saved in the Old Testament, it's by God's grace. If anybody's saved in the New Testament, it's by God's grace. What's determinative in salvation is His choice, His power, and His way. Hebrews 12.2 puts it in a new covenant or gospel context for us. Looking to Jesus, who is our salvation, speaking of salvation, looking to Jesus, the founder, which also means originator, or you could say initiator. So there's one book in. Where did my faith and my salvation begin? Jesus, all right? And the perfecter, which means finisher, the other book in. And so if we're contemplating the Old Testament salvation, and we're also kind of comparing it with our New Testament salvation, they're both the same in that they both began with the Lord and they end with the Lord. And as I understand the, the Bible, brothers and sisters, there's nothing that happens in between the founder and the perfecter that changes anything. If you're his, you're his. Because he's the perfecter. He found you, and he'll bring you safely home. And so the gospel, I think, is crystal clear in the structure of Deuteronomy. You're like, what? Yes. 
Yes, the book, the majority of the book is covered with laws and the consequences of obeying and disobeying those laws, but those, those, even the law sections are sandwiched with grace. So I, I, y'all, y'all know I, I like using these sandwich analogies. Remember Ephesians 5.1? All right, so think of the bottom piece of bread being the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. What was it about? Remember the salvation that you have and how you got it. Grace. God came and got you. You couldn't get out. He rescued you. He flexed. You didn't flex. All right, then you got the laws and the commands. And then the top piece of bread of this grace sandwich and the last four chapters of Deuteronomy are grace anticipated. What he, you remember the word, will bring to you and your people. So you got grace at the beginning, you got grace at the end. Well, then you go, well, what's that nasty stuff in the middle? Are the laws and the statutes and the commands, are those grace? Absolutely they're grace. What makes something a grace from God is the outcome that it brings not how it makes you feel. If you're God's today, every single thing that comes your way, and I mean everything, every single thing that comes your way is ultimately a grace from God, no matter how bad it hurts. Romans 8, 28 says, for all things work together for the what? Good. All things, that's all things. That's not just Disney World things. Even though I'm not even sure that would be in my, like that's not even in my category of good things. But, but it's, not, it's not just Disney World things. It's everything. It's every joy. It's every tear. We have this promise from a faithful God that everything that we receive from his hand is in fact a grace from him. And so what makes something a grace is not how it makes you feel. It's the outcome that it produces. And so, yeah, the law is Grace. Because without the law, according to Paul, we wouldn't even know we need to be saved. The law, the purpose, primary purpose of the law was not only to show God's holiness, but was to show our inability to keep. Which forces our minds, if we're honest, to go, I need to be saved. I need help. I need somebody to do what I can't do. And of course, that's where Jesus comes in. And so I think through this idea of choice, and I know that I know choice is a loaded term. I get it. It causes angst and fights and denominational splits, and I, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm just here to give you the Bible. Honestly, I mean, honest to goodness, I'm here to give you the Bible. One of the primary ways God's grace is shown is through his choice of Israel. In chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, listen to this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's already done, okay? And now he's about to tell them how that happened. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And you might want to go, okay, this is when the Israelites are going, yes, yeah, because of my muscles. It's because I'm so pretty. It's because I'm so rich. It's because we are so numerous and we offered so much to the Lord. He had to have us on his team if, if he was going to be successful. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on, which basically is saying you were, you were actually the weakest. Like he's telling them, if, if I was gonna choose a people based on a people, it wouldn't be you. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, listen, set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. If you're a believer this morning, 
And, if, and, I, and I'm assuming, like, like if you're a genuine believer, you may have these thoughts just like I do. Like, man, how? Like, why, why do you love me? Because he loves you. No, no, no. Like, what's the foundation? Like, what's the reason that you love me? Like, like why do you love me? That, that's the question that's being answered here to the Israelites. Why do you love the Israelites? And he's like, I just told you, because I love them. No, what's the basis? My love. That's the basis. You got it? I love you. I love you. Not because you offer anything. You don't, actually. The basis of my choice of you and my love for you is that I love you. I wonder any, if any of us just need to rest right there for a minute. That God's love for you, if you're His, is not based on your performance, accolades, abilities. His love for you is based on the fact that He's chosen to set His love on you in spite of all the inadequacies that we have. And you think you know you, you don't even know you the way he knows you and he still loves you. Chapter nine, four through six, he makes it even more clear. Do not say in your heart, this is when they get to the promised land, do not say in your heart, Israelites, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, he's telling them, I am going to destroy the people that are in your land. You're going to get it. He says, don't say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. And I want to be really clear here, and, and I'm just like, I'm trying to be humble in how I say this, but if, if you reflect on your salvation and you think even an ounce, an inkling, if even a centimeter of your thoughts about your salvation are because of your righteousness, repent. Turn from that sin. What a shame to think that we could add anything to the righteousness that Christ has given us. What a shame. That's what he's telling them. It's, it's not because of your righteousness. He says, he goes on to say, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. He tells them again, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that they may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob the Israelites were not the desirable choice that they didn't bring anything to the table except for the need to be saved and so when you think about it God choosing them is the only way any of this could have been guaranteed it's the only way that's why I say sovereign grace if, if, any, if any of us have hope today to be saved, the, the ball, listen, please, this is so important, friends. You don't want the ball in your court. You don't want to be the one shooting free throws for life or death stuff. You don't. You're going to miss. You're going to miss. It doesn't mean that we don't obey. Of course we obey. But what has to happen is the same thing that God promised the Israelites and what he's brought through the work of Jesus Christ and why he told Nicodemus when Nicodemus is like, hey, what are you about? How do I get to heaven? And he doesn't tell Nicodemus, hey, you keep being and even be a better teacher of the land because he was the best of the best. He told Nicodemus, no, you have to be, even you, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. 
There has to be a miracle in your heart. Fundamentally, something has to change on the inside that your works can't produce. So believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. They must be, we must be born again. And so I don't want us to look at Deuteronomy or any of the Old Testament books and be confused. I don't want us to go, oh, that's back when grace wasn't grace. No, this is all grace. And so my conclusion for us and the Israelites is that if we were left to our, or let me ask you this way. What if the Israelites were left to, and I'm going to use another trigger phrase just to make the point. What would happen if the Israelites were left to their own free will? What would have happened if God just said, go be you? What about you? What about me? What if God would have just left us to figure it out? Is that hope? Is that confidence? Is that assurance? It's one of the primary reasons I think so many people are walking away from Christianity. Because they're not believing the gospel. They're believing themselves. They're hearing these sermons of 12 step to the new you, better you, whatever, hogwash. And it doesn't transform a heart. And if we're honest, we all get to a point in our life where we're like, this that I'm believing is not doing it. It can't. It doesn't give me hope beyond this circumstance. But the gospel, it does. The true gospel, faith in Jesus, there's literally nothing Nothing that can change the realities that Christ has done in you and through you and for you. They last forever. There's nothing that can remove you from His presence or His hand. Even our own disobedience, there's a category for that in that we repent and turn to Him and praise Him for the salvation that He has freely given a sinner like me and a sinner like you. And so works and obedience are necessary for salvation. But thankfully, the determinative and decisive work and obedience that's necessary for our salvation, for those of you that have trusted Jesus, was done by Jesus. So if you're saved this morning, you're saved by His works. You're saved by His obedience. He's given you a new heart. He's given you the ability to love Him and to love His ways. Now go obey. Not to maintain, but because of. Because of. Because of this grace. The grace is always meant to be the sort of bulldozer pushing it. Like that's the motivation. That's the motivation to love God because he first loved you. That's the motivation to love other people because he first loved you. It's the motivation to show grace to other people who don't deserve it because he showed grace to you who didn't deserve it. Like the grace is the motivator. You're not trying to earn anything. You're not climbing a ladder of righteousness. If you're saved this morning, if you trusted Christ, you're already at the top of the righteousness ladder positionally you're there you're saved and God leaves us here to grow us more and more and more into the image of Christ's likeness that will happen it will happen so Daniel and uh, Denise you guys can come back if you would bow your heads um, this morning um, believers and, and, and what I mean by believers I, I mean that those of you who have trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation 
And I don't ever want to just throw terminology around and take it for granted. I mean, I know we live in a context and a culture where most of us have been to a VBS and raised our hand and done whatever we thought, you know, and all that's wonderful and great, and God works through that. But do you trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation this morning? It's not Christ plus anything. It's Christ. And if that's you this morning, we're going to celebrate in the way that the Lord has ordained us to celebrate, and that is through this invitation to His table where we eat His bread and we drink from His cup. But before we get to that, if, if you're not a Christian today, if you haven't trusted Christ, first I want to say, in humility, please don't partake in the elements that are out. And, and I don't say that like we're better than you. It's not like that, but it, it doesn't mean anything to you yet. And so what you're offered in the gospel is, are not these elements to try to earn or gain salvation. What you're offered in the gospel this morning, right now, in this moment, is Christ Himself. Trust Jesus. And if you sense the Lord working in you in that way, I would love to talk with you after the service. But believer, if you want to go ahead and reach around for the elements that should be close to you, this bread, this bread represents the physical body of Jesus Christ. Jesus in physical form, fully God and fully man, He walked he walked in perfect obedience with his hands, with his feet, with his eyes, with his ears, with his mind, and with his heart. He did what we could never do and therefore fulfilled the law to a T, perfectly. But that perfect life of obedience led the physical body of Jesus Christ to a Roman cross that was representative of what sinners deserve. And so, believer, as you take this bread this morning, you're thanking Him and proclaiming that He was the sinless Savior, Jesus, but that He died a sinner's death, that His physical body died, and spiritually He was separated from the Father in your place. Our sins will not have the final say in our life because Jesus took them. And so, believer, with joy this morning, and by way of proclamation and remembrance, you may eat the bread. The blood of Christ was the only blood that could be shed in our place. Every drop of blood under the old covenant was pointing to the blood that would, would be shed by the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. His blood not only brings true forgiveness, but it also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus drank this cup, but for Christ, this was a cup of wrath. He took a cup of wrath so that we could drink this cup this morning, and it could be sweet to our lips as a cup of mercy. And so, believer, this morning, take, take this juice with joy and by proclaiming and remembering what you have received through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you may drink. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.